starting at chapter 8 of the book of Revelation. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth! at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet. And I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. 
They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lions' heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues a third of mankind was killed, by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Please turn over to chapter 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of His covenant was seen within His temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Thus ends the reading of God's Word. Thank you, Fritz, for reading that long and difficult passage. Um, my name is Murray Nickel. If uh, I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you yet, uh, I'm the assistant pastor here at Redeemer. Uh, let, me, let me pray for us once more as we come to this text. Father, you tell us that your word is life, that there's nourishment to our body, to our soul, 
God, we confess that, that sometimes your word is bewildering to us. Sometimes it's outright shocking. And yet, God, we do believe that your word is living and active. So, God, we ask that you would move by your spirit through your word this morning, that it might impart life. We thank you for Jesus, our Savior, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, we're continuing our series in Revelation this morning, clearly. Uh, And as a reminder, a revelation is a vision that was given to the Apostle John while he was exiled on the island of Patmos. It was given to John so that he might share it with the church, particularly the church of the first century. these, These were churches that were suffering under intense pressure to conform to the pagan world, to abandon the gospel, and they were suffering under intense persecution for not doing so. And this morning we come to a, clearly a very difficult section of Revelation. You know, this is the second set of seven that we've seen in the book. Last week Fritz preached about the seven seals. Uh, this week we see the seven trumpets. And then when we get to chapter 16, we'll see the seven bowls. And just right from the start, I want you to know that um, if you find yourself squirming in your seat a little bit, if you find yourself a little uncomfortable after hearing Fritz read that text for us, I want you to know that that is okay. You know, something I tell our students in, in youth group, when, when we come to a difficult verse or a difficult passage, I say, if we believe that God's word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, then we don't need to be surprised and we don't need to be afraid of times when we come to it and we find that it disrupts us, it gets inside of us, it makes us uncomfortable. And in fact, what I tell them is that actually might be a sign that we're actually hearing the Bible as God's word because it's disrupting us. And if this passage doesn't, doesn't shock us or make us even the slightest bit uncomfortable, I think we might need to do a pulse check or a heart check uh, because these are truly difficult verses. They're disrupting verses, and they're meant to be. And they're not, they're not only difficult in the pictures that they represent and present to us, but, but also in understanding what they mean. And so before we get to the trumpet blasts themselves, I think we need to just keep a couple things in front of us as we approach this passage of the seven trumpets. Uh, first, a word on language. Um, you know, right from the start, we need to remember the language that we're, we're reading. It's the language of vision. It's full of imagery for a reason. And the fact that it's full of imagery means that the language John uses is is figurative. It's not literal. It's intended to produce for us an impression rather than precision. So what that means is that as we read about these judgments, these these trumpets, uh, we, we shouldn't walk out expecting or planning or looking for the sun to be struck necessarily, Uh, to see a swarm of of locusts with women's hair and lion's teeth wearing armor for battle coming out of a bottomless pit. This This is figurative language. And yet, just because the language is figurative, that does not mean that it does not describe reality in all its fullness. This language, these pictures do describe reality. Second, chronology. Um, you know, just like it doesn't make sense to read this, this letter and this section literally, I don't think it makes sense to read these three sets of seven sequentially. You know, like as if we're going to see all seven seals happen in order, and then all seven trumpets happen in order, and then all seven bowls happen in order. 
And in fact, the text doesn't even, the text doesn't even really allow for that. You know, for example, in the passage that Fritz just read in, in chapter nine, uh, when the locusts come, there's a, there's a prohibition against them harming the grass, whereas we already read in chapter eight that the grass has been burned up. Similarly, in the third trumpet, a star falls from the sky on the third of the rivers, but already in the sixth seal, back in chapter six from last week, we've seen that all the stars in the sky have already fallen. So there must be something else going on here besides these, these three sets of seven happening in order. You know, Fritz, so the question is how? How do they relate to each other? Uh, Fritz touched on this last week, that, that all three of these sets, they share the same structure, the same kind of rhythm and flow. Uh, you have a group of four that go together, then you have a group of two that go together, and then you have a, an interlude, a break, and then you have the last one. All three do that. And I think one of the, one of the reasons that it's presented to us like this it because, is because it points us to seeing these as, as three perspectives on the same reality. You know, it's as if John sees something from, from the, the perspective of the seals, and then he's whipped around and he sees it from the perspective of the trumpets, a different angle on the same situation. And we'll see the same thing with the bulls. And yet, there, there is some kind of progression, because you may, already, you may already notice from reading it that the language here is much more intense than the language of the seals. And what we're going to see when we get to the bulls is the language of the bulls is much more intense than the language of the trumpets. You know, it reminds me, it reminds me of music, right? Any, any popular song generally has a chorus, right? And it's repeated over and over throughout the song. And what happens the more times you hear that chorus, the, the more times it comes back around? Generally, the chorus gets louder, it gets bigger, more instruments join in, more voices. And the closer you get to the end of the song, the louder and bigger the chorus gets. And I think that's sort of how these three sets of seven are functioning. You know, the closer we get to the end of Revelation, the louder and bigger they become. And I think that's because they're pointing us to something. They want us to see something. So what is it? Well, I think, I think all three sets, the seals, the trumpets, the bulls, I think they all point us back to chapters four and five that picture of the heavenly throne room, an all-powerful, perfectly righteous God sitting on the throne, promising that his purposes are and will be fulfilled. Again, remember who John's writing to. Remember who he's writing to. Churches in the midst of severe suffering, severe pressure, severe persecution to compromise, and, and being, being persecuted for faithfully following Jesus. Imagine the strength it would give to be reminded that God himself sees it and he will make it right. See, we understand that feeling, don't we? We understand the feeling for things to be made right. We understand it in really small ways. You know, kids, when, when, a, friend, when a friend won't share, when a sibling says something unkind or hits you, you want for that to be made right. Or parents, when you're driving down the Waterson and someone cuts you off going 90 miles an hour, you want that person to get a speeding ticket. We want things to be set right. And we understand it in big ways too. All, all you have to do is take a scan of social media, of the news, to see that we live in a world that longs for things to be set right. Longs for things to be right. And the picture we're given in this passage, and all throughout Revelation, 
is that in the end, only the sovereign God of the universe, the one who sits on the throne as the lamb who was slain, only he can answer that longing, the depth of that longing for things to be set right. And he promises to do just that, in part, by executing his judgment. And that can leave a bitter taste in our mouths, can't it? And yet, I think our passage today actually gives us three pictures, three answers of of why the sovereign God of the universe alone can meet our longing for all that's wrong to be set right. And it didn't make it in your bulletin. That's due to me. I didn't get it to Shannon until late in the week. Um, but, But the three things this text says to us is that it's because God's judgment touches everything. It's because God's judgment is purposeful. And ultimately, it's because God's judgment is not the end. So look with me first at the first six trumpets themselves where where we're going to see that God's judgment touches everything. So chapter 8, verse 6, we we begin to see with John the unfolding of these trumpets of judgment. And if you'll allow me one more word on this passage, and then I'll stop stalling. Um, There's a lot of discussion over how we should interpret the images of Revelation. You know, some say that when we look at these judgments, that, that we should be looking back, that all of these things would have been fulfilled likely in the lifetime of John's first hearers of this letter. That's the the historicist view. Others point forward and say, most of these things are are not here now. It it represents some future time of greater tribulation, um, just before God judges the world. That's the futurist view. And then the third is the idealist view, which says that these images are actually not far off from what we experience now. And that um, it represents the life we should expect between Christ's first and second coming. Um, and and that's, that's what I see here. I think when we, when, we start looking, when we start looking at these images and we're willing to strip back some of the imagery, we see that, oh, these things are not far off from what we see on the news each evening. Okay, so enough stalling. Uh, so what are these judgments? Well, the first four judgments show us that God's judgment touches all parts of creation. In verse seven, the first trumpet sounds, And hail and fire fall, mixed with blood. A third of the trees were burned and all the grass. Eight and nine, the second trumpet, it brings something like a great mountain thrown into the sea. A third of the sea becomes blood, killing a third of all sea creatures, a third of all ships. In verse 10 to 11, the third trumpet sounds and a star falls from the sky onto a third of the rivers and springs of water, making the water bitter and undrinkable. And in 12, the fourth trumpet a third of the sun is struck. A third of the sun, moon, and stars are struck, and the sky is darkened. So, so what do we make of these things? Well, first, notice the similarity in the language and the images as it relates to Exodus, to the plagues God brought against Egypt and Pharaoh in Exodus, right? Hail and fire in the seventh plague. Water turned to blood in the first plague. The sky darkened in the ninth plague. See, all of that, John is doing this intentionally. All of that judgment that God levied against Pharaoh in Exodus because of his wickedness against his people, we now see God levying at all of creation because of man's wickedness. And notice that it touches every part, the land, the seas, the rivers, the sky, the streams, even the sun, moon, and stars, even the cosmos, and this is not a, a, a future far-off reality. 
This is our present reality, and, and Scripture speaks to that. Go all the way back to Genesis 3 in the garden. After Adam and Eve's rebellion against God, God curses the ground because of Adam's sin. And in Romans 8, Paul says that all creation groans with the pains of childbirth because it has been subjected to futility. See, this language is not describing some future state. It's largely describing what we see now. And we see it every time we turn on the TV. Earthquakes, tsunamis, famine, drought, millions of people without clean drinking water. See, these things, John, John says, are, are evidence of God's judgment on creation itself. God's judgment touches all parts of creation. And yet that's, that's not the only thing it touches. Verse 13, we get this ominous warning, right? John sees an eagle flying over, over the, directly over the face of this world of judgment with a warning. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. What we see is the angel saying, listen, as bad as the first four trumpets are, it's about to get worse. How could that be? Well, we flip the page to chapter nine, where we see the fifth and sixth trumpet show that God's judgment touches mankind as well. We're going to move fairly quickly through these two, but, um, but verses 1 to 11, the fifth trumpet is blown. A star falls from heaven, and the star is personified, and it says he's given the key to a pit, to a bottomless pit, and he opens it, and smoke rises out of it. And with the smoke comes these hordes of grotesque locusts, right? With tails like scorpions, it says, the, the power to harm, and, uh, but not to kill any who do not belong to God. As they come out of the pit, we have this grotesque picture of their appearance, right? Crowns on their head, women's hair, lion's teeth, breastplates for battle. And their mission is to torment sinful man, those that follow their king, who is named Abaddon or Apollyon, which are respective, the respective Hebrew and Greek words for destroyer. It is a grim picture. And we're given another warning. The first woe is past, the second is yet to come. And the sixth trumpet in, in 12 to 19, it's similarly terrifying. Picture of uncountable troops. John describes it as twice 10,000 times 10,000. It's 200 million. And I love that he says, I heard their number. The thundering of an insurmountable force. It's not a literal number. Again, it's meant, it's meant to give an impression of just the insurmountable force of this assault. They're released on horseback from the Euphrates to torment and kill mankind. These are, these are grotesque and terrifying pictures. They are. And again, the imagery is difficult here, and, and it's disorienting, but we can infer from elsewhere that, that in view here is Satan and his demonic forces. Right? Think back to the Gospel of Luke. Jesus tells his disciples that he saw Satan falling from heaven like lightning, kind of like a star. The locusts call us back again to, to Exodus, to the plague, to the plague, the eighth plague, and also to Joel 1 and 2, where Joel calls on a swarm of locusts to strip the land bare because of God's people's rebellion. Similarly, the Euphrates, 
Euphrates was, was in the heart of the Babylonian Empire. Babylon, right, was the empire that took God's people into exile. And all throughout Revelation, what we see is Babylon is a stand-in for evil itself. And from the heart of evil itself, you have this unbelievably large force released to bear down on mankind. And yet in the midst of this, notice that God is still in control. Satan is given the key. The troops of the, at the Euphrates are released. The locusts are only allowed to torment any who do not belong to God. This is not to say, please don't hear me say that God delights in or approves of the works of evil. But again, what we're seeing is that even in the midst of this grotesque and terrifying image, God is still on his throne. Satan can do nothing outside of what God gives him permission to do. And what God gives him permission to do is to torment those who are living in opposition to God. See, we're given a picture in these two, in these two trumpets of, of what life looks like outside of God's people. It is a picture of subjection, not under the sovereign king of the universe who sits on the throne as a lamb who was slain for his people, but in subjection to the, to the king of destruction who comes to slay his people. See, it's a life of internal and external torment and pain and misery. It is a bleak picture. And what John is saying is this is not the future. Whether we know it or not, this is the reality for any of us who are outside of God's household. So what do we see in these first six trumpets? Well, again, we see that God's judgment, it touches absolutely everything. It touches every part of creation, and it touches every part of man. So why then? Why would we bring our longing to, for things to be set right to a God who executes this type of judgment on this world? Well, it's because what these judgments tell us is that only God's judgment deals with absolutely everything. No stone in creation is left unturned. No wicked deed is swept under the rug to be forgotten. And for things to actually be set right, that has to be true. It has to be true, and we understand that. We have categories for that. Many of us know and love people who are currently or who have undergone treatment for cancer. And perhaps you've had to watch as a family member or a loved one or a friend has, has had to undergo the pain and suffering of chemotherapy, the fatigue, the nausea, the hair loss. Why would a doctor recommend such a harsh treatment? It's because that in order for actual recovery to occur, any doctor knows that you cannot stop halfway. Every cancer cell has to be dealt with. And the same is true of this world. For things to actually be set right, every act of violence, greed, anger, pride, must be dealt with. And only God, in his judgment, touches absolutely everything. And yet it might, I know, I, I can feel the silence in the room. <laughs> and I know that it, leaves a sour, it can leave a sour taste in our mouths. Because I know that all of us, 
All of us have family members or dear friends who we read these images, especially in the fifth and sixth trumpet, and we know that they are represented in those numbers. Or perhaps you're here and you feel that torment. You feel that misery. And we wonder, if a God who, does, who, who allows people to experience that, how can that be a good God? Well, that's where we turn next, because God's judgment not only touches everything, but God's judgment is purposeful. It has a purpose. How? Well, we see two things, I think, in this passage. I think we see that God's judgment is an answer, and God's judgment is also a call. So an answer. If, if, we were to flip, if you'll flip back to the very beginning of this passage, in Revelation 8, 1 to 5, which Fritz preached on last week, you know, we're, we're transported in these first five verses back to that heavenly throne room of chapters 4 and 5. And we see a picture of the prayers of the saints being collected in a golden censer by an angel. These saints are the same ones that in chapter 6, the, the martyred saints cry out before the throne of God, how long, O Lord, before you judge and avenge our blood? In other words, how long, O Lord, until you set all things right? And this angel comes and he stands before the throne with that censer full of those prayers. And verse 4 and 5 says that those prayers rise before God. And the angel takes the censer and he fills it with fire from the altar of God itself and he throws it on the earth and there's rumblings, flashes of lightning, peals of thunder and an earthquake. See, what we're finding in this image is that it is actually the prayers of God's suffering people to set things right that actually bring about the things we just read. And I know that that's hard, but what that tells us is that God sees when his people suffer. God sees when this world suffer and he cares about it. And he promises that he is and will act on their behalf. It's an answer. It is an answer to the sufferings that God sees in this world. But it's not only an answer, it's a call. If we were to scan back through the first six trumpets, and you probably heard it as Fritz read it, and this is what I love about Revelation, it was meant to be heard. Because as we hear it, we notice the same things over and over and over. What we see in these first six trumpets is that every judgment was limited in its scope. Each of the first four trumpets could touch only a third of creation. The locusts and the army of the fifth and sixth trumpet touch only a third of mankind. The locusts are allowed to torment mankind for only five months. It's not, not literally five months, but it's, it's, it's limited. It's limited. Again, it's more than it was in the seals. The seals were a quarter. Now we're a third. It's an intensifying. But it's restrained. The, the image, we, the impression it gives us is that God's present judgment against this world and against mankind for his rebellion is restrained. Not only that, but we're also twice given literal warnings. First, at the end of chapter 8, with the eagle, and then between trumpets 5 and 6, warning that the second woe is coming. See, all of this, it calls us back to 2 Peter 3, where the Apostle Peter speak, is speaking about the coming of the final day of God's judgment, also to a people who are living in persecution and suffering. And what he says is this, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 
So what is the purpose of this restrained judgment? It's a warning. It's a call to those that are living in rebellion before God, saying, whoa, turn, repent, there is still time. See, judgment, judgment is not God's ultimate delight. No, in fact, if we were to flip over to the Old Testament, the prophet Ezekiel, in chapter 18, God says this through Ezekiel. He says, have I any pleasure, any pleasure in the death of the wicked and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? See, the impressions that were given in Revelation 8 and 9 is that God is unflinching. He's unflinching. And yet he is not vindictive. He's actually restraining the full weight of his judgment, the judgment that will make all things right as a warning to turn back, turn back before it's too late. It's a call to repentance. And and we understand this idea of restraining judgment as well. Think of a parent with a disobedient child. A loving parent isn't holding their breath, just waiting for the first chance to bring the hammer down on their child. Rather, when a young child disobeys, a loving parent wants to give opportunities to turn, to obey. Things like, Johnny, it's time for bed. It is time to put the toys away. I'm going to count to five, and you need to be on your way to your bed. See, a parent's patience and restraint in judgment is is a shadow of God's patience, God's restraint of the full judgment he will bring. It's a call, a warning to repent, to turn before it's too late. So so what does this mean for us? I I think that this purpose, the purposefulness of God's justice, it says something to both believer and unbeliever. If you're here and you are not a follower of Jesus, I want you to hear in this that the sovereign God of the universe, his longing is for you to repent and turn. If you, if, if you feel that torment and see that torment in, in the fifth and sixth trumpets in the world and maybe even in your own heart, can I suggest you pay attention maybe to where it might be coming from? Can I suggest graciously that, that the God of the universe may be using it to call you, to warn you, to call you away from living in opposition to him? It's not too late. There, there is still time. His judgment is restrained. To the believer, I think this calls us to remember or to consider what what our reaction is when we feel slighted, when we feel unfairly treated, when we turn on the news and see, see Christians unfairly treated, punished, perhaps outright tortured because of their faith. What is our heart's response? Are we overtaken with bitterness? Would we rather just shut the doors of the church batten down the hatches, and just wait for the storm of God's judgment to pass? Are we given over to to anger and resentment at our unbelieving neighbors? See, I think what this this tells us, what Revelation 8 and 9 tells us is that it's actually God's promise to hear the cries of his people when they're suffering. It's actually that promise that calls us away from bitterness and resentment and anger towards the world. And it actually frees us to heed the command of Jesus to love your enemies, 
to pray for those who persecute you. See, God's judgment, it's far from meaningless or vindictive. It is deeply purposeful. And yet, we see and know that the reality is the call of God's judgment to repent, to turn, it won't be enough for many. And a time will come, a time will come when it will be too late. Look, at, look with me at verses 20 and 21 of chapter 9. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hand, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Notice the difference between the sovereign God of the universe who has all things under his hand and these idols that cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. See, just like Pharaoh in Exodus, many will look at the sovereign God of the universe and see only vindictive judgment, and their hearts will be hardened so that they do not repent. It is a sad reality. Our hearts should break when we read this. And if God's unflinching judgment, if, if verse 21 of chapter 9 is the end of the story, it is a sad reality indeed. See, something more is needed. And yet there's one trumpet left, isn't there? So turn with me just for a moment to chapter 11, verse 14, where we see that God's judgment is not the end. You know, like Fritz mentioned last week, in each set of, of seven, there's, a, there's an interlude, right? A break in the, in the series between the sixth and the seventh. And, and the same is true here. And that, we find that in chapter 10 and the first half of chapter 11. And don't worry, we're not going to touch that today. Uh, we have plenty to handle without that. Fritz is going to take that up uh, over the next two weeks. But, but in verse 14 of chapter 11, we see one final stark warning like the first two. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. It's the same warning we heard before the fifth trumpet, and the fifth was worse than the first four, and the same warning we heard before the sixth trumpet, which was worse than the fifth. And if you're like me, your stomach drops a little when you read this, because we've been, we've been primed to expect that this will be the worst yet. And yet, instead we get a surprise, don't we? Because when the seventh trumpet blows, we are immediately transported to a world just beyond judgment. And we suddenly realize that, that judgment is never the end of God's story. Rather, the trumpet blasts of God's judgment are replaced by the rejoicing of God's people. And what are they saying? The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And then the 24 elders who are sitting on the thrones around God, they fall on their faces and they begin praising God and worshiping God for answering his people, for even destroying the destroyers of the earth. In other words, the world that was once filled with judgment on the grass and trees, sky and sea, rivers and streams, even the heavens themselves, the world in which Satan was once given the power to torment mankind on every side, internally and externally, 
The world that was once under the rule of evil we see has been transformed into the very kingdom of God himself. And that in verse 18, the destroyers of earth, this is the second time we've seen that word, the destroyers of earth, Satan and all evil, vanquished forever, a world beyond judgment. And we might wonder, how is that possible? How in the world do we get from chapter 9, verse 20 and 21 to chapter 11, verse 15? Well, it's because of what we read in verse 15. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ. You see, it is because of who sits on that throne of chapters four and five, the judgment is not the end of God's story. Jesus, the lamb slain for sin, a God who does not stand far off and sling rocks of judgment at the world without compassion, but who actually stepped into a world under judgment and not only stepped into it, but was crushed by judgment for us. And he did it for a purpose which we see at the very end of chapter 11 and verse 19. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumbling, peals of thunder, an earthquake and heavy hail. See, the ark of the covenant, it was the mean, you might remember from the Old Testament, is the means by which God was able to dwell with his sinful people in the most inner, innermost part of the temple where only the high priest could go. And once again, the the heavens are open and John sees God's temple with the ark in its midst. And yet now, the temple is not a building. The temple is his people, you, those who are united to his son. The reason Jesus stepped into judgment was crushed under a forest was so that God could dwell among his people again. Not only spiritually, but physically. And notice that the very signs The word of God's judgment in chapters eight and nine are now the signs of God's presence with his people. Lightning, rumbling, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. See, Revelation, this this letter, this vision, it is certainly full of honest images depicting God's judgment against sin. And God, God does not apologize for it. He is perfectly just in his judgment. And yet, God's judgment against this world will not woo us on its own into faithfulness. It will not woo us on its own into repentance. So actually, Revelation is always calling us to look just a little bit further to a world of sin, a world under the rule of evil transformed into the kingdom of our Savior the one who stepped into this world under judgment and was crushed under it for our sake. Also that we might be invited into a world beyond judgment, a world where God has finally set everything right. And so as we close, we are right back where we started, aren't we? You know, whether, we are, whether, whether you're here and you're a believer or not, we all long for things to be set right. We all long for a world without earthquakes, famine, disease, and death. We all long for a world where evil has been put to death once and for all. 
And so for all of us, the call of revelation is the same. Yes, judgment for all of that is coming and it is even in part here now. Oh, but there is so much more to be had afterwards. So the call of revelation is to look to Jesus. He's the only one that can answer that longing. Because he's not only the one who sits on the throne to execute judgment, but he's also the one who stood under judgment for you so that by faith, you might too be there in chapter 11, rejoicing with his people and proclaiming that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Let's pray. Father, God, you are sovereign over all things, over judgment itself, over evil itself. God, you know our longings. You know the longing we have for you to set things right. And God, we praise you as the only one who can do that. God, we ask that as we, as we go about this week, God, in our small and big sufferings alike, as we see a world in which we see evidence of your judgment against sin, Father, fill us with hope. Lift our eyes, Father, to see your son, the lamb slain, seated on the throne. It's in his name we pray. Amen.